Hello and a big welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and today I'm meeting author Freya North. I went to my GP and was given a course of counselling on the NHS. For the first three sessions, I couldn't actually talk about feelings. When she asked me how I was feeling, what did I think, you know, what was going on, I realised I was still too frightened to actually access it. I could describe perfectly the physical side of stress, grief, fear, but she said, no, but what are you feeling inside? What are you thinking? And it took a long time for me to access that. As we speak, Freya is working on her 16th novel. She's been a prolific writer for decades, but in amongst the joy of transporting readers to beautiful locations, Freya's life has been peppered with pain and distress. I absolutely loved talking to her about the moment she realised she needed to take care of her emotional self with the same attention and effort she was giving her physical health. Freya lives on a farm in East Hertfordshire, but she came and joined me at my house for this very gorgeous chat about everything from our shared fear of confrontation to our shared belief in the magic of creativity. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, this is the show. it's so wonderful to meet you thank you for coming to my house today are you okay because we were texting yesterday and you had a burst pipe or some awful farmyard incident yes going it on. was an awful farmyard incident <laughs> and I spent the entire day very wet very cold because it was like minus three yep. I was dressed like a human tarpaulin so it's so nice today to be in a little frock a pair of heels and uh, nowhere near the mud. Heaven. Heaven. Is it all fixed? Is it all right? <laughs> it is fixed. It was gushing for about four hours. I wouldn't know what to do. Well, I basically tried shoving my hand against it, but then it sprayed all <laughs> over my face. Um, and then the actual stop, the, the main stopcock was on in some field, like, you know, a muddy trudge away. Oh, but God. eventually I switched the water off and then... I had to admit to Vite it was something I couldn't try and fix myself. No way. No way. No, no, I, I wouldn't. I would just stand there crying, hoping that someone I would did. save I did. I cried and I swore. Yeah. That helped, but it didn't actually fix it. Swearing is my favourite thing at a time of crisis. Swearing is my really favourite Really loudly, <laughs> really loudly. I was trying to hoover this little room before you arrived, which is in the garden. So there's always a million leaves in here. And my hoover, I've got, I have to get a new hoover. My hoover is so shit. And it kept turning itself off, coming out the plug. And I was just, no one can hear me in it. I was bellowing swear words. Heaven. I actually think swearing is really cathartic. I do. I love it. Yeah. 
just the greatest. Look, I want to talk. There's so many things we need to talk about. Thank you, first of all, for sending me an early copy of Little Wing. This You're is your welcome. 15th novel, isn't My it? My 15th, 15th novel. Yep. God, that is crazy. It's so beautiful and heartwarming and poignant and obviously the way that you describe places is key to what you do and you do that so phenomenally in this book. I've read that you you don't start with issues that you want to address. You you go with a story and you see where it takes you, but there are really clear themes in this book. Shame, loneliness, belonging, identity, lying there's there's real clear themes in there when you're writing a story are they themes that are just sort of within you bubbling away that you've personally dealt with where do those those sort of issues come from it's a really interesting question and it's one that I usually have to take a long time to think about because I don't set about writing a book thinking right I would like to have some uh, issue-driven themes here. I think uh, in this book I shall tackle uh, shame and regret and resilience. Really, I start with characters. I start by asking myself, what if? And usually that question will then birth so many ideas and characters. And then really I don't actually, it's quite unorthodox and I do get into trouble with other authors as well as sometimes with myself for this, but I don't plan. So I literally start with a word and then a few more words and I've got a sentence and then eventually I have my opening paragraph. And by that stage, usually that's enough to get going. Wow. I love that because I think anyone out there who wants to start writing for fun, for whatever reason, you can often be quite daunted thinking you have to have a fully formed story with a beginning, middle and end. But you're saying just start. Yeah. I mean, uh, for me, and I really do believe that there is no right or wrong way to write. So, for example, early in my career, I remember being completely flawed and going home, you know, paranoid that I was doing it all wrong because Mm. I met an author who said that that day he'd been working on dialogue and I thought fuck I don't have dialogue days right okay from now on Monday's going to be dialogue day Tuesday I'm going to do landscape and setting Wednesday I'll do character (laughs) and it didn't work it didn't work Mm. for me I know other authors who meticulously plan each chapter before they start even writing a word. But for me, I just really, truly believe that stories are like dust motes floating about. And every now and then one comes and alights on me. And it's a real privilege then just to stop and really listen, really listen, and wait for the story almost to play across my mind's eye like a movie. And then I write what I see. That's so wonderful because you're you're describing there what sounds like you're sort of channeling this energy or whatever you want to call it from elsewhere much like I always imagine musicians have that feeling that the song arrives and if you are perhaps too structured or you're trying to work to how other authors work you kind of kill that I guess I'm not good with a sort of structured approach to anything and I'll often go on other people's podcasts I did one this week and it was a lovely guy that interviewed me. He had a really like swish set up with cameras everywhere. He was reading questions off his um, iPad. He had a full team. And you can see here, I have a tatty notebook that I write scribbles in. This makes me feel good. I have to go with what's right for me. And for a moment, I get all compare and despair. Oh my God, he's got an iPad and it's all neatly laid out and la la la. And it's like, 
I just can't work like that. And you have to find your own your own rhythm, I Absolutely. guess. Absolutely. And I, I love what you said about channeling because I worry that it sounds really wah-wah to say it, but the last two books... I love wah-wah, yes. <laughs> Good. Love. The last two books, there have been passages in those books, not just passages, probably chapter after chapter where I have no recollection writing it. Mm. So I touch type really, really fast. And I honestly believe that as long as I put my fingers on the home keys each morning, by the end of the day, I've written. Yes. And like Little Wing is such a precious, precious book to me and had such an extraordinarily profound emotional time researching and writing it. And in fact, when I finished it and I printed it off, I took it to bed with me. I just didn't want to let it go. I physically cuddled it and I took it to bed and sort of put it by the side of my bed. And then about two hours later, the energy coming off that manuscript, I couldn't bloody sleep. So I had to get out of bed, still cuddling it, take it back, take it into the kitchen, dump it on the kitchen table and then go back and try and get to sleep. I love this. But this is it. Like to me, creativity is magical and it is otherworldly and it is inexplicable. It's not some sort of formatted thing. Obviously, you have to have put work into it. There's an element of dedication and commitment to a project, but you have to have some magic in there. You know, I'm hoping to get Julia Cameron on because I've just reread The Artist's Way, which is exactly everything you've just said. Start writing, let it flow get it going. But I know that you've obviously also had a period where that wasn't the case prior to this book. And that after 12 books that seemingly once again flew out of you, they they formed themselves as you were writing them. You had a period where there was a lot going on in your life. But one of the things notably that affected your work was writer's block. And you'd never experienced this before. Writer's block. I had experienced it um this is my 15th book. So I'd experienced... Oh, the 13th book. My Sorry, 13th book. It. But there are, this is where I've realised there are two types of writer's block. Prior to any of this, I didn't think it existed. I thought writer's block was just a lame excuse by lazy authors who, you know, rather go shopping, <laughs> watch daytime telly, do anything. Um, but my 13th novel, I had the story, but I, it was like it was being told in jumbled whispers in a foreign language and it was dreadful because I I wanted to write the story but I just couldn't access it I couldn't access it and I lied to everybody because you know my agent would phone and say how's the book coming along darling and I'd say oh yeah yeah you know it's fine it's fine and it wasn't fine it wasn't fine at all and I'd written by that stage a dozen books which had quite literally flown out of my fingertips. Why was this one so hard? Um, And then it really struck me that if I don't write, who am I? And if I don't write, how do I pay the bills? Because I'm a single parent. I'm the sole provider for my family. I need to write. And that first time that I had writer's block was really very frightening. Um, It made me physically unwell as well you know I gave up caffeine then I thought I'd try lots and lots of caffeine <laughs> you know I like that approach. I had some hypnosis <laughs> I went to the doctors I was put on really high dose slow release beta blockers to try and calm me down um, I also remember reading or listening to an interview with Gary Barlow who'd experienced something similar and had actually sat under his piano you know, distraught. And I felt that same level 
of um, devastation. Um, but with that book, I did. It wasn't any external factors that were um, intruding on my ability to write. It was simply a freak thing of this dust moat not quite settling on my shoulder and me not quite hearing what was going on. So in the end, I took myself off to my local library and I set up there and I just solidly spent the hours putting down word after word until a momentum started to arrive and then I just followed it to the end and in fact I was in the library when I finished that book and I leapt up and punched the air <laughs> and cheered and nobody batted an eyelid because there's always Mad Jack McMad in a library anyway yep. so I was just one of those. <laughs> yeah you took that role on perfectly that day. It's so tricky because not only does that writer's block affect the practical things you've talked about being the breadwinner and supporting a family but also it's your joy and also we've just talked prior to this about that energy that comes through you and when there's no release that I'm not surprised you're on beta blockers I've I've had uh, you know been prescribed a similar thing for anxiety or different things in the past and I can see now how there was no release for the energy that I felt and for the creativity and the things I wanted to do and action but I couldn't because of all sorts of mental blocks and things going on so it does become a very physical thing there is a manifestation which is really full-bodied and irritate, like an, it's an it irritating felt like energy. I was stuck in my body and in my mind, but I was ricocheting around them. Yeah. So I had all this energy, and there was just no through route. It was just cul-de-sac, cul-de-sac every every step of the way. Torture. And then the book that I wrote after that one. So that one was called. The way back home. And it's so interesting because at no point in the book can you tell that I struggled and struggled wow. with the writing. And then the following book, The Turning Point, um, that flew out of my fingertips in, I don't know, three and a half months. I literally couldn't keep up with it and I typed fast. It was a great thing that my dad made me do when I um, graduated from university. He made me do what was then a sight and sound <laughs> touch typing course. He said, you know, if you don't make it as a writer, at least you've got secretarial skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's turned out to be a very handy skill indeed yeah. to have. So let's talk about the the period of your life before Little Wing, where I know you had a hell of a lot going on mentally, emotionally and physically. This book is set in Harris and the Outer Hebrides and you describe it so eloquently that I feel like I've been there now. It's so gorgeous. And I know that that has become a, a real sort of special place for you for many reasons. I'm not sure where you want to start with your story, whether it's in Harris or the bit before that. <laughs> it, this is your time and your space. I to, think to go standing on... Luscantire Beach, which is an extraordinary stretch of sand on the Isle of Harris in the Outer Hebrides, was where I took a very deep breath and thought, OK, OK, you know, you've been through a lot, you're going to go through a lot, but this is the point where you try and start to make sense of it. It was eight weeks after I'd had back surgery, which in itself was a very frightening thing for me. Uh, losing my mobility for a while and being in a lot of pain. Um, I was very, very nervous about being under anaesthetic and I was just really quite frightened about A, whether it would work and 
be what it would feel like and what my convalescence would be like. But it went, it was a very straightforward operation, thank goodness. And then it was about healing. And it was really while I was concentrating on all this physical healing that I started to really task myself. And I don't use that word lightly, but I had to task myself with also getting my emotional self back on track and healthier. And it was where the two collided at Lascantire Beach on Harris because it was there eight weeks after surgery where I was able to go for my first run. You know, I'd followed everything that my physio had had advised and this was the day, eight weeks to the day that I could run again and off I went and it was, you know, with tears streaming down my face. It was extraordinary. And when I got back, I thought to myself, you know, I need I need now to spend some time on my mental well-being. So prior to your back surgery, you'd been through a hell of a lot of other stuff going on as well, moving from, you know, incrementally, but moving from London to the countryside, breaking up with the father of your children, lots of sort of emotional turmoil going on. And then you just, I've read that you've described it as a breakdown. What broke? What was the bit that kind of broke first? So I don't know. I think maybe for some people, one specific thing happens and it's so traumatic that they have a breakdown. For me, I think it was incremental over 2016. Um, I'd had foot surgery at the end of 2015. And then in 2016, I just had layers of shit in my life. Excuse my French. You can use all (laughs) the French you like. French is welcome. Um, I had a, a very tricky situation at at our farm where when I'd moved into our farm there were people stabling their horses there and it was a very unpleasant bitchy and cliquey atmosphere down there to the extent that I didn't go down to see my own lovely horse until I knew the place was completely empty even though it was my home and I lived there and it was a very difficult situation to deal with because I really don't do confrontation it really frightens me. I'd rather feel myself being um, grated on the inside to avoid confrontation. I'm the same. What do you think the fear is there? Mine is certainly people making assumptions about me because they have since I was a kid on the telly. So I have a huge fear of people making an assumption about me that is wrong, that I'm uppity or a bitch or whatever whatever it might be what do you think your fear is behind it I think my fear behind it was that I wouldn't be able and I know this sounds really pathetic but I've done a lot of work (laughs) so I'm happy to be able to say this out loud but I felt that my little voice wouldn't be heard Mm. you know I'm quite a short person (laughs) I'm only five foot two and I just often feel shrunken I feel diminished sometimes if I'm feeling overwhelmed or if I'm feeling backed into a corner and I'd rather almost become even smaller and just avoid everything than run the risk of somebody being mean or shouty or, you know, too strident and then me suddenly losing all the things that I've practised in front of the bathroom mirror to be able to say. Mm. It's a real coping mechanism avoiding confrontation, isn't it? I've personally found that because, like you were just saying there, if you 
if you do feel courageous enough to say something and then someone does shout you down or or says something opposing to your ideas it almost confirms your own fears and you go well I, well I was right I am I don't have a voice or whatever it might be and that's the most terrifying thing that can happen is that your negative beliefs transpire to supposedly be true. So how did you deal with it? So you had this clique, you, you, yeah, you didn't want to have so, to deal with this in your home territory. Yeah, so um, I, it was actually Easter that year and I was away in Wales with my gorgeous cousin Kate, who's like an older sister to me. And she took one look at me and knew that something was wrong. She went, you know, what the hell's going on? And I told her everything and she sort of almost started very gently laughing because the solution was so blindingly obvious to her. She said, just get rid of them. Mm. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know how to, you know, I can't. What will I do? What will I do? She said, it's just really easy. She said, just get rid of them. Just tell them to go. Just say, get off my land. Yeah. <laughs> boundaries. It's boundaries. Yeah. Again, I'm yeah. not, or well, I haven't historically been great at boundaries. I find it very hard for the same reasons that I don't do well with confrontation. I find it difficult to say to someone, either I need this from you or can you not do this? Because I don't want people making assumptions about me again, which is, is all the same sort of root fear with so many of my things that I'm sort of going on with. So, so you had to deal with this sort of confrontation, but set a very clear boundary. This is my home. I don't want that energy here. I think as well, my land... The farm, the land, the um, the fencing, the facilities, it was all really almost like collapsing around me and I didn't have control over it. I didn't have control over it at that stage. And I think it was when I saw how poorly, especially the land looked, you know, barren and poached and weed infested, that I thought this goes beyond me you know, this is my home, this land nourishes the animals, it's also, you know, a very spiritual place for me. And I think it was that that then really made me see beyond just my own feelings. So before you got to that point of seeing that it, you know, it was helping the animals and it was obviously a beautiful bit of land that you wanted to nurture, did you have a sense that you were undeserving of it being your own without other people and looking how you wanted I it to? I didn't feel it was I was undeserving, but I had been made to feel I'd been made to feel that I was beholden to everybody else yeah. and that what the hell did I know and how the hell was I gonna, you know, know what to do and when to do it. So I'd sort of been made to feel that I was not somebody who would have a clue mm. and that's sort of quite a disarming and disabling thing especially when it's being done in an indirect way you know I just thought well I'd never be able to look after this place by myself. I think it's a problem so many of us face in different areas of our life whether it's in our home life in friendship circles at work I've probably dealt with it more in my working life where I felt that people have had an opinion that I wouldn't be able to do something. And you can see when it starts to infiltrate your own confidence and what you believe your capabilities are. I've definitely worked through them over the last, I don't know, probably five years. And I'm now doing something that I really love and I feel really confident in it. And I don't mind as much what people say. But certainly before that, if someone had made a comment about me presenting or whatever, I would have believed them over my yes. own opinion. So how did you get to the place where you started listening to you? Therapy. Right. 
same. Therapy. Absolutely. I'm still in. I'm always going to be in therapy. Mm. I'm never leaving therapy. No, why would you? It's brilliant. (laughs) Exactly. But um, and also asking for help, asking for help and knowing, you know, what was beyond my then, you know, my my knowledge and asking a local farmer, asking an agronomist. I didn't even know that there was a career called agronomy. And fantastic. It's all about, you know, (laughs) the study of soil and Mm. uh, what grows there. And as soon as I asked, I realised how willing people are to gather around and help. And then they almost take joy in seeing fields flourish again. And, you know, so they all became part of the health of our farm, which was wonderful. Was that quite healing for you as well on a sort of physical or mental note, knowing that you had that support, but also seeing a transformation take place? It was incredible. And in fact, a couple of the fields that were the most damaged, we then reseeded and I chose and did some research into a really lovely old English meadow mix. And um, I grew my own hay. And then that's gorgeous because then... You're really going through the cycle of the land seasonally, when to let it rest, when to let the hay grow, obviously when to cut your crop, and then throughout the winter, being able to feed the animals the hay from from the land. Mm, So wonderful. And here's me, born and bred in the city. That's great, but this is it, but it just shows that... You can learn new stuff whenever you choose, whenever yep. you fancy, and make changes and push yourself and try new yep. things. And it's terrifying, and you might be, you know, shouted down by other people. But it's an amazing thing once you start a, a new process. And and we probably don't do that enough in life. We play it safe and and do what's comfortable. So I'm not exactly sure what the timeline is, but you had all this going on with the with the cliquey women. You at some point in this also had a romance that felt really exciting that then stopped very abruptly. So I'd been single for a long time and I'd, you know, hey, I'm a romantic novelist. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I really wanted the big romance. But I think for a while I was so focused on the move from the town to the country and on my kids who were, they were only seven and five when we moved out, that I'd sort of said to myself, you know what, the universe has decided that it's more important that, you know, the kids have me than that I have someone else. So I'd sort of got my head around that one. Although, as the kids got older and kind of needed me less, I became acutely aware of what I guess I called my on my ownness, which wasn't really loneliness or aloneness. It was just sometimes feeling very on my own, like I didn't have that person in my corner, that I didn't have, you know, that significant other person to bounce ideas off, to cry, be ugly with, laugh with, you know. And I think that's as well why the whole situation down at the stable yard was was tough, because I didn't have somebody to hide behind or just ask for some help with or you know can you read this letter that I'm going to write or you know whatever but yes um really no sooner had they had they left that uh, I sort of tumbled headlong into one of those ridiculously amazing and wonderful I don't know what you call it because is it a relationship or is it a dalliance it's something else it's where you're at the epicenter of somebody else's universe the Mm. two of you and you live in this sort of hermetic bubble where you're a world within the world and really you know there's probably no true longevity in something like that 
but it should be allowed just to 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 gradually go but i was ghosted literally overnight and that was horrific mm-hmm. that was horrific you know where was i in all of this where was where was the opportunity for me to say hey can we talk about this can you know can i just say thank you can i say why can i ask this can i suggest that nothing all gone literally overnight and it made me feel dreadful it's so awful and prior to us chatting today I was reading an interview or actually you know, a piece you'd written about it and I thought god we haven't covered this subject on the podcast and we really haven't delved into it anywhere near enough considering how common it is I've had it happen countless times but I remember one specific short relationship in my 20s where I felt exactly the same as how you described it in that piece where in your head everything is so dreamlike still and amazing and connected and then without explanation overnight it's gone and where do you turn in those moments for me personally and and I think it's similar to you from having read the piece you start to question yourself because you go there must be something inherently wrong with me that I have to be Flawed. I mean, we're all flawed. We know that. But there has to be something so wrong with me that, or I must have done something that I'm so unaware of for it to have finished. Mine was the same as yours. Literally overnight, I had a text message, end a relationship, which was under six words in text. It was pathetic. And now looking back at the age I'm at now and where I'm at in my life, I just think that person clearly was really lacking communication skills and emotional intelligence, etc. But at the time, I didn't. I thought yeah. there was something wrong with me. And I carried that along with me for so long. And we really haven't talked about this enough on the podcast. And it doesn't just happen romantically. You know, it can happen Friends, with friendships course, yeah. as well. And work colleagues. Yeah. I've had it with work. Well, yeah. I mean, I've been it's a really, like that loads. It's really, really mucky behaviour. It's cruel, it's insensitive, and it's just it's it's dreadfully also immature. So immature. It's, it's just there's there's something about it that is just not right. It's not good. It's not good. And it's so interesting that it took me so long to take the blame off my own shoulders and just shove it away and it was sort of just as that had happened that um, I I thought I'd done something wrong to my left leg I'm quite sporty and I thought I must have twanged a hamstring and I think I said I'd had foot surgery the year before and I was due to have some more surgery on my foot and I went to see the consultant and as I bent to undo my trainer he said why did you wince and I went, sorry. He said, you just winced. I went, oh, I think I've tried my hamstring. Anyway, he examined me and he said, that's not your hamstring. Go for an MRI now. And it transpired that I had these two really, really badly herniated discs. I didn't know there was anything wrong with my back. Wow. At all. I had no back pain at all. But if somebody had given me a blunt pair of scissors and said, cut your own leg off, I would have. Oh, my God. So then I had... The trauma, and it was really quite traumatic of knowing that I needed back surgery. And I remember sobbing and sobbing in the consultant's office and him sort of looking really quite baffled and saying to me, 
Auntie Murray's had the surgery. <laughs> and I said, but I don't like tennis. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, you've got all the you've got the burden of I've got two kids. I'm I'm the sole care of these children. You've got a lot of responsibility. You've got land. You've got a lot of responsibility. Yeah, it was really worrying. But there was nothing. There was no alternative. Yeah. Sometimes with discs, you can wait for them to reabsorb or break off. But these two needed to be taken out. And then I had a really fascinating, I watched it on YouTube, not mine, but I watched the procedure called um, a laminectomy where they go down inside your spinal column and they take bone away from the inside of the vertebra to free up space for your nerve bundles. Wow. And all I've got is a teeny tiny little scar. And as I say, eight weeks later in the Outer Hebrides, I was running. Do you think, you know, again, I, I don't know the exact timeline, but do you think there was a correlation between the, the sort of mental, emotional trauma that you'd had and your back problem and a sort of physical manifestation of that stress? I would like to have thought that. I would like very much to have thought that. But I did actually ask the consultant that. And he said, well, quite frankly, at your age, it's probably just wear and tear. Oh, nice. Thank you very much. Because <laughs> I, I had, I had a... Um, Assist on my vocal cords about, I don't know, three years ago, which obviously for my line of work is catastrophic. I couldn't work and I was quite terrified about having an operation because I would have had to have had a huge amount of voice rest and then learn to speak again, etc. And I literally don't do anything else. Well, a bit of writing, but I don't really do much else work-wise apart from talk. And I spoke to my um, throat doctor about it and, and I said, this might sound a bit woo-woo to you, but do you think this is me not saying what I need to say some of the time? And he went, probably, yeah. And I thought it was very open-minded of him and very generous of him to sort of, I guess, entertain my queries around it. But, you know, you read so often and I've got books on my shelves here from Dr. Joe Dispenza and... And other people that deal with that sort of correlation between the mental and the physical, maybe it had some bearing? I would think it probably did because, as well, I was always pushing myself. Yeah. You know, and... And carrying a lot on your back. And carrying a lot on my back. You really were. Yeah, yeah. so really I think were. the consultant was wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think so I mean, as I think well. it's partly right, but partly wrong. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So through this period, were you aware that, that you were going through a breakdown? How, you know, obviously, it's easier in hindsight. I can say the same. I had a big period of depression in my early 30s. I didn't know at the time what the hell was going on. And it would undulate and there'd be bits of anxiety in the mix as well. Whereas now, not completely, you know, I haven't rid myself of all of it. But I can look back and go, oh, my God, what the hell was going on there? And how on earth did I go to work and talk on the radio every day? What was going on? Yep. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know it at the time mm. either. I just thought it was, you know, shit upon shit upon shit yeah. on top of my shoulders, yeah. weighing me down. But it was when I felt that my physical recovery was going well that I thought I've got to sort out my, my headspace because 
I needed to write and I couldn't write. I was out in the Outer Hebrides researching an idea for a TV drama, which I still really, really hope will come off one day because it's it's so wonderful. And it's (coughs) based on the true story how 40 years before the birth of the NHS, there was an extraordinary state-funded programme of healthcare given to the Outer Hebrides in the form of the district nurse. So in a time when they had to pay for the doctor, pay for the vet, they got the nurse for free. And these women were extraordinary. They were so robust. They thought on their feet. They were amazing women who would row boats from patient to patient to see them. And I thought, you know, what's not to love? It's a medical drama. It's the Outer Hebrides, it's quirky characters. So that's why I was there. But I got so much more from from the island. I'm sure you weren't expecting that. You know, you went there no. for work. And then yeah. it seems from, from reading the book and articles that that trip was maybe a pivotal point, that something Absolutely. started really clicking into yeah. place. Because I had then like a glimpse, an inkling, like a little sensation of my old energy to mm. get writing. But I still felt somewhat fragile. Let's say fragile. Why not? Frail, fragile. I did. And that's why when I got back from the Outer Hebrides, I thought I need to I need to speak to somebody about this. I need to have some therapy. And I went to my GP and um, was given a course of counselling on the NHS. I had to wait probably three months or so, but I'm still with the same counsellor. I now see her privately uh, once a fortnight and she she ain't ever getting rid of me. No. <laughs> it is wonderful. What do you, so this is straight she, up talk therapy? Yeah, yeah. And she really helped me see because in fact, for the first three sessions, all I could do was tell her what had been happening. Yeah. I couldn't actually talk about feelings. And then afterwards, when she asked me, you know, how I was feeling, what did I think, you know, what was going on? I realised I was still too frightened to actually access it. I could describe perfectly the physical side of stress, grief, fear. And I could say it feels like this, it feels like that. But she said, no, but what are you feeling inside? What are you thinking? And it took a long time for me to access that. And she was the one that really helped me see that, in fact, that level of stresses, anxieties, traumas, griefs, really does amount to a breakdown. You know, I think people think of a nervous breakdown as someone who suddenly literally drops and, you know, is a blathering, blithering wreck. And it wasn't like that because I think women of our day and age, we are we're like one of those little toys that they call weebles where you can push them yeah. and they just spring back up. You just got to keep So going. you get pushed. Yeah. And then you spring back up and keep going. Then you get walloped again and you have to spring back up and keep going. And that's what it felt like to me. But then I just didn't stop wobbling. Yeah, (laughs) And that's what I wanted. I wanted, again, the kind of what I craved was an element of calm where I could just take stock of what had happened and a good way through it all. Mm. It's, It's so important that you mention there that notion of us perhaps, whether it's going for a breakdown or any other mental health problem, but still functioning. Because you're right, I think there is still this sort of bizarre feeling that if you're 
going through something like that, that you're in bed all day, curtain shut. I certainly wasn't. I was having to talk to loads of people on the radio every day whilst feeling horrendous. And I think it's important to talk about because often we'll have people in our friendship circles or families and we'll you be going don't through that going through. and you don't know. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. And I had to fun- function. I had to function. Yeah, we had no choice. No, I had to, you know, I would get the kids to, to the school bus and it was almost like I couldn't then wait to get home because I'd been holding it together, holding it together. And I would get home and just like curl up embryonically and just, you know, weep for like a good few hours or just stay in that position and then suddenly think, fuck, I've just been sitting here for four hours. I've done nothing. I don't even know where I've been in my head, Mm. but I've just been sitting here. Mm. And then it was through therapy that I then decided to go on antidepressants for a while. And again, I really dithered about that one because they still get, if not bad press, They're kind of tainted. There's a stigma. You're on the happy pills or, you know, fuck, you know, how screwed must I be that I've got to be on, you know, antidepressants. But they're not like that. It was marvellous, you know, because after three weeks, I I thought to myself, do you know, I haven't sobbed for a couple of days. Mm. And I thought, I actually just feel a little bit more like the old me. Yeah. And it was amazing. Mm. It was amazing. And then I started really becoming profoundly interested in how all-encompassing mental health and mental well-being can be. And I thought, I can't look on antidepressants as a crutch. I can't see my beloved counsellor as being, you know, my, my sort of guru. Because ultimately, the person responsible for all of this is me. Mm. And I became really interested, wow, look what antidepressants can do because depression can really fuck around. God, my language is terrible today. I'm so sorry. Let it out. But it can really mess up those very delicate chemical balances Mm -hmm. that we need. And antidepressants are amazing at helping restore that balance. Counselling as well was really helping me with the kind of intellectual understanding of being depressed and I thought what else can I do what else can I do and I thought how much I loved sport and I really grew to be totally in awe of what endorphins can do for you my consultant had suggested that I also take up cycling because it's low impact. I hadn't ridden a bike for God knows how long. But being somebody who doesn't do things by halves and always sets myself ridiculous challenges, I decided to sign up to with the cycling club. And this is before I even had a bike. And um, <laughs> this was in the May. You might I'd, need to get a bike. <laughs> yeah, I might need to get a bike. I had the back surgery in the March, in the May. Signed up, not just with the cycling club, but actually put my name down to do a coast-to-coast cycling in wow. September. Wow. I didn't have a bike. <laughs> I, didn't have, I didn't even know if I could ride one without stabilisers. Anyway, I got one, taught myself to, to ride along the relatively safe lanes. You know, it's a proper road bike. I was clipped in, didn't even know how to release my, 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 my feet from the, from the pedals. So for yes, a while... Yes, doing that. I've done that once with the, what they called... Cleats. Cleats. Impossible. I fell over at a traffic light. Bang. Yep. Couldn't get them out. Yeah. 
I've been there. Nightmare. I've been there. But I trained myself initially by finding sort of billowing hedgerows, thinking, oh. right, I can stop because I can yeah. just fall into Tip that. myself Perfect. into that. Anyway, doing the training really started making me feel super alert, feeling quite vibrant. And I thought endorphins, you know, and I started, I suppose, thinking of looking after my mental health as being like pillars. So I had, you know, my my therapy pillar, which was looking after the intellectual, the, the sort of the thinking side, the understanding of it all. I had my antidepressant pillar, which was looking after the chemical side. Then I had this fantastic pillar, which was, you know, sport and recreation, exercise, physical exertion, which was giving me endorphins. So that was that one. But for me, I felt there was still something missing. And that's where mindfulness came in. And what shape does that take? What What is that for you? So I did a lot of reading. I find it quite difficult sometimes to read about mindfulness because it's so intensive that I sometimes almost like get lost within a paragraph. So I did a few courses. And really for me, for someone like me who lives in their head, you know, I, I've, I've said at some point that, you know, my imagination is both my my kind of my gift, but it's also my curse because I can go down a rabbit hole. Catastrophizing. Catastrophizing or just thinking. And sometimes my overactive imagination has really proved to me to be such a comfort in that if I've been frightened or lonely or like with the situation down at the yard or with the bloke, I can take myself off literally down a daydream for hours. Yeah. And it just gives me respite yeah. from what is going on. You know, at school, my school reports are full of, you know, she daydreams too much. Mm. But <laughs> That was me. You the know, same. I think we should daydream. But, but for me, it had become a real crutch. So you need to almost, I guess, as you say, daydreaming and having a wild imagination is a beautiful thing. But you perhaps have to have discipline around it or, f- or focus within it. Because I'm the same. I could go off catastrophizing unbelievably and end up in a, in a horrible place mentally and then not be able to sleep because I've created a whole situation that doesn't exist. But equally, like at the moment, this is quite niche what I'm about to talk about, but I over Christmas have been absolutely obsessed with that Beatles documentary, Let It Be. Mm-hmm. It's like seven hours long. I'm going to start watching it again because I feel so bereft that it's over. I could be very obsessive about things. And I've quite literally just been lost in that world for about three weeks now. And, I, and whenever I'm, I'm not doing something, I'm, th- I'm in the 60s. But what I love about it is it's, to me, and I've watched so many you know, documentaries about the Beatles, I was weaned on the Beatles, but for me, Get Back is like time travel. Oh my gosh. Because it's footage we haven't seen and it's, it's like the I've thing. taken a pill and I've gone back in time I know. and I'm a fly on the wall. But I, I've been I've been using it probably as a crutch like when mm. things are feeling a bit mundane or I can't be bothered to put the recycling out or whatever. I just go into that world and I think it is a wonderful thing to have but you do have to watch if you live in that world too much but also the other side of it the catastrophizing bit yeah. which you know I think so many people deal with today because we're bombarded with information and ideas yeah. and fears more so than anything and we have to kind of put a cap on it so how have you learned to use it for work in the best possible way but eradicate the bad bit so one of the best courses that I did it was just a day course and it was sort of a beyond mindfulness course, it taught me the difference between thought 
and thinking. And it was described to me and it, it is so resonant to me. And it was described to me as thoughts are involuntary. You cannot help having thoughts. Yeah. And actually, I don't know how they have found this out, but the average person has between 60 and 90,000 thoughts a day. They just ping all the time. Mine are all ping, about ping. the Beatles, but they're, they're, it's in that, in that number. <laughs> Little thoughts coming in. And some of them won't be about the Beatles. Some of them you won't even know are thoughts. Yeah. But they're filling your head. So if you imagine them, all those thoughts just travelling on the stream through your day, you are the one that chooses which ones you pull out and think about. So thoughts and thinking are two different things. And I realised I was spending way too much time thinking about thoughts. Thoughts aren't real. I mean, they're real because they're thoughts, but they're not... They're not true. They're not true. But I would scoop out a thought yeah. and I would do a heck of a lot of thinking about them. And a lot of damage with them. You yes. can because invariably, use them as weapons against yourself. Invariably as well, the thoughts that I'd do all the thinking about were negative thoughts or frightening thoughts or sad thoughts yeah. or over-emotional thoughts. And what this course taught me that thinking can then lead to feeling. And feeling can actually influence behaviour. Mm. And it all comes from that one thought that is just floating by that I chose to pluck out and stay too long with and waste hours and hours of my day on. And it's easier to pick a negative one than a positive one. It's hard work to pick the positive thoughts. It is. And the positive it's and, also and like... Take I, hold of them. I don't know why I do this, but like, for example... I, if if I read a review, I just skim over the good reviews. Oh, yeah. I'm going on Amazon and I'm thinking... You're looking for the bad one. I'm going to look at the one-star review yep. and I'm going to carry that under my skin. Why do we do this all to day? ourselves? I don't know. Freya, I do it all the time. <laughs> and I even had a moment of it this week where... Obviously, social media for anyone out there, whether they're in the public eye or not, has to deal with this and how much you listen to the negative or or imbibe something that doesn't look popular or whatever. You know, again, we forget we've got agency over this and we let it all in. And I did it this week. I let probably two, not even that negative, but things that just touched a nerve with me. And I was like, oh, my barriers were so far down. I let it all in. Yeah, I'll take all of your opinions. I will take your projections of your life on and I will have them, I will hold them, I'll feel guilty about what I've achieved, what I've done because you don't feel good about yourself, whatever it might be. And I lugged it around and I gave myself the worst stress headache for two days. I chose to do that. Yeah. I made all of that happen. I could have seen them and just gone, oh well, that person's having a terrible day. It's a shame that I've, whatever I'm doing has triggered them in that way, but I'm going to carry on doing what I'm doing. I took it all on and I think it goes back to what you've just talked about. We forget we've got a choice. We do have a choice. We, which yes, thoughts it is we within our control. Honestly, I must look complete. I mean, it's quite lucky that I live in the countryside <laughs> and not many people see me on a daily basis because I now do this thing. If I've got a negative thought and I'm starting to know that I am doing some thinking on it, I quickly turn my head or I physically step to one side. Yeah. I mean, if I was just walking down, you know, London <laughs> Street doing that, people would be crossing the road. It's so great. I feel quite good that I can do that. But, you know, I know some people will snap an elastic yeah. band against the wrist. But I find actually I turn away from it. I turn my head as if to say, no, I'm not looking. I'm not thinking. I'm going to look in this direction. I love this. So that's what I do. I love it because it, it's... You, I don't you, twitch. But, you Twitching know. would be fine anyway. <laughs> Any physical 
moment to to notice that you're doing it because I think the awareness is the bit that's missing often we're not even aware that we're lingering on a negative thought so to move your head or to do something to go oh no no I'm aware I'm aware that that is not true it's a thought it's real but I don't have to embody it and and lug it around with me I want to go back to something that you said a moment ago when when you were talking about therapy And and I think this goes for anything whether you're having a conversation with a friend someone that you trust and love how you get beneath the stories because I think most of the time we live within the framework of a story and it might be a real story we might have created the story but it's all about the story and we completely ignore the feelings as you just said it took you a while to get to that place where you were like right this is the story but what's under it because you know I've talked to so many therapists whether it's for work on the podcast at the festivals or privately and you can tell they're not interested in the story. The story is whatever. They're just going, yeah, la la, la get to the point. Because they want to deal with the feelings. The story could be anything. It could be something so minor or it could be something horrendous that's happened to you. But what are the feelings? How did you start to excavate that and get beneath it to what was really going on? I think I had to stop just using my power of words to describe things because Mm. I was only describing the surface and I would be very very happy to spend you know my entire session using all the really best words (laughs) ones with loads of syllables fantastic (laughs) adjectives just describing the surface Mm. and I think it's the skill of the therapist to help you then deconstruct so I felt that what therapy did for me in those early days was it lay everything in pieces in the safe space of her room on the floor like the whole of me was a deconstructed jigsaw puzzle and I realized as we started putting it back together you know doing a jigsaw can be really therapeutic and it's a really lovely thing to do with someone so I saw therapy is almost doing a jigsaw together her and I and just sort of chatting as we were just putting the pieces back together and it was for her to to sort of show me very gently that I was trying to ram that piece in yeah (laughs) over there didn't fit over there just take it out don't worry about that piece just take it out has that process helped with your writing do you have a more in-depth relationship with your characters because you're able to get beneath the story of your own life I think I've always been very lucky in that my characters have been as close to me as best friends or sisters. I don't have sisters, but I've written about sisters because I've thought, well, I'd like one. So, you know, if you write them. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But I think what therapy has really helped me do is to give time and space for each character that I write to breathe and to be really three-dimensional whether they're an elderly man in Harris or somebody working in a care in a community cafe in Colchester whether it's a musician or any number of the people that I've written about in fact it it was an interesting thing I was thinking about this as I was traveling here today about imagination and I I'm never going to apologise for having a vivid imagination or for the fact that my imagination, although it got me told off at school because, you know, I was always daydreaming, it's actually given me this great career because there's the author Sebastian Folks who's now said 
that he won't write, he won't describe female characters anymore because he doesn't want to offend anyone. But I think if you're an author, you have free reign to do precisely that. You know, you can really imagine... I might not have had any of the experiences that some of my characters have had, but that doesn't mean to say that I'm not equipped to really imagine what that must be like. Yeah, otherwise... Where does that end, that role? Because that moves into the territory of obviously film and TV and music. And can you write about any subject that you haven't first-hand Can actors act roles that, yeah. Or artists paint something that they've never experienced or even seen first-hand. It's it's tricky. And uh, and I love imagination because of that. It's expansive. It's sort of never-ending. So so between, you know, you've had t- another trip to Harris more recently. So you'd, so you'd been to Harris, you'd had that seminal moment, you'd had your first run, you went back, you discovered that you needed more. So these pillars were created of sort of health and well-being for you. And then you went back to Harris. This is after writing the book, right? Yes. So um, that was all back in 2017. I came back and I started the work on myself. I still wasn't what I would call writing fit. And initially, Little Wing was called The Lost Mother. And I'd written a a few chapters of this book around about 2016, 2017. And every now and then I'd go back and revisit it and it's the only piece of writing that I haven't actually taken to fruition. It's So Little Wing is a completely different book to the book that I thought it was going to be. But still for a while I couldn't write. I, I then started teaching writing. When I say teaching writing, teaching's the wrong word, guiding. And I absolutely love doing that. I I love being with a group of people, some of whom are really excited to write, ambitious to write, some who are there because they don't know if they can, some who are there because their mums have sent them. And just to see, I've, I've called it the joy of creative writing, just the release that people get and how much it gives them, what they take away from it. So I think, though, for a long time I was doing that because it was another way of avoiding myself Mm. writing. And then lockdown came, and I wrote Little Wing in four months. Wow. I was just ready. I was just ready. Because although I live on a lovely farm in Hertfordshire, I was still so aware of the turmoil in the world that during daylight hours, if I could escape in my mind's eye somewhere else, it helped. It helped me just sort of have some respite from all the worry. I didn't sleep for months, you know. So you could just go to Harris whenever you please. That's it. That's it. I was sitting in the box room because my daughter had commandeered my writing room for her (laughs) schoolwork. And it it was just like, it is literally a box room with boxes in it. (laughs) And there was me, it was a funnel it was like a creative funnel between between the boxes, me and my laptop, and in my mind's eye, Harris. Harris both in the late 1960s, where some places had only just got electricity, and Harris in the early millennium. And I then changed the story, and I thought, what if I sent 
somebody to Harris? What if I sent a character? And what if that character is 16 years old and it's the late 1960s and she's pregnant and she's banished to the Outer Hebrides? And then what if 35 years later someone goes looking for her? And that's all I needed to start mm. the book. And then off I went. It's so wonderful. So, so having this story pour out of you during lockdown and then revisiting Harris... How did that feel going back there, having this character that you could almost bring along with you and you've you've set this whole amazing story and outcome there? Was that quite an emotional situation? It was incredible because it felt like I was following in her footsteps. Mm. And I've had this feeling once before when I wrote The Turning Point, which was partly set in Canada. And this is how real characters can be to me because the Canadian character, Scott, I actually asked him if he wouldn't mind being Californian because I'd just come back from doing a road trip in California and I'd never been to Canada. I didn't have time, really, I didn't think, to go to Canada and do a research trip. But no, Scott was resolutely Canadian. So for the turning point, I took myself out to Canada. I'd never been, I didn't know anyone there. But as I was driving to this beautiful, beautiful village called Pemberton in British Columbia, I had this overwhelming sense, like I did when I went back to Harris, that... They were just a couple of steps ahead of me. They were just around a corner. And if I just sped up a bit, I might find them. But they'd always just gone when I arrived. They'd always just gone. Mm. That it's a really amazing feeling for an author to so believe in the the truth of your character. Mm, That's so wonderful. I'm imagining that it was a healing book to write because of everything you'd been through and because it was set in such a special location that was very close to your heart and a place that made you feel joyful to think about. Where are you at today? Where am I at today? I feel like I'm in a really happy place. I'm in a really good place. I mean, you know, there's daily headaches, but I can cope with the daily headaches of, you know, fixing fencing or a burst pipe down at the stables. Um My writing, I feel, is going from strength to strength now because I think what I have learnt over the last few years and doing all this work on myself and how I am prone to getting too wrapped up in thinking is I have learnt now that there's a time and a space for it. So, like, when I'm on a dog walk, I can really indulge myself. But when I'm writing, I'm totally focused on channelling my imagination for the character's needs and also for the reader's needs as well. My readers are very, very precious to me and they've stuck by me over 25 years. Um, And I think it's afforded me now a freedom of pushing it a little bit further because I know that I'm no longer in its thrall. I'm no longer um, slave to it. So the book that I'm currently writing is all set in the late 1980s Manchester. So it's like as far from the wild and, you know, majestic beauty of the Out Hebrides as you can get. But I feel that because I'm more disciplined about when I spend my own personal time doing thinking, that I can actually therefore be more creative and developed as a writer, if that makes any sense yeah, whatsoever. No, it completely does. <laughs> well, you've set your own boundaries and and it works for you creatively. And, and I wonder how your heart is, because I think for anyone that was listening to that section earlier about being ghosted, which obviously resonates with me hugely, and I know my own sort of healing out of that pain to then trust again, 
How, how are you in that department? I'm really happy in that department. I have a lovely, lovely boyfriend called Anthony, who I got off the internet. Amazing! Yeah, an internet boyfriend, <laughs> I love it. And, and did you feel you could walk into a new relationship with, with trust? Because obviously, whether it's falling in love or starting again or, or or going back out with someone you dated years ago, whatever it might be, there's a huge chunk of vulnerability that comes with that. There is. And I think as well, because of the effect on my self-esteem and my self-awareness that what I'd been through had had on me and then the um, methods and the commitment that I'd put to helping myself, I think my choices have developed and are much, much better. So I have made a good choice. You've made a good choice in Anthony. I have made a good choice in Anthony. (laughs) I found someone who is emotionally robust, who's had a lot of life experience, who is also really interested in all the things that I'm interested in being um, open about feelings and being brave to talk about stuff that's happened or, you know, stuff that, that we all fret about. So it seems that, you know, I have that balance now, mm. which is great, which is great. That's so wonderful. <laughs> and I'm so, ha- it's so lovely. And they all to- lived happily ever after. I don't, well, like we, the best books. This is it. We, that's, that's where that story ends. Um, of course not. But this is the thing, isn't it? Like you go through certain amounts of turmoil and heartbreak and, and physical pain, and then you gain new tools and methods and ways of dealing with life. So as, you know, inconsistent as life can be and unexpected as it, always is I guess we can only but gather tools and, and methods and I ideas I think you always go. have the choice as well even if you feel that you don't at some stage have the strength to make the choice you always have the choice in which direction you are going to steer your life and I'm really proud of you know there's an, a cycling expression you know mountains are all in the mind And, you know, I had a lot of mountains in my mind and I conquered those fuckers really, really well. And I'm now, you know, I now feel really adept at steering myself down, down and along and up rocky paths, still rocky paths. But I feel more confident about the way that I choose to steer and the, you know, the directions that I take. And I really do feel that that's because of, you know, the work that I've done. Yes, because often when we hear, I hate reading magazines when it was like, you've got a celebrity and they used to have depression and now they're cured. And then there's this sort of supposed, like you've just said, happily ever after where their life is plain sailing. None of us have any guarantees. We don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes when you walk out of the door and get on the train, when I then go and pick up the kids from school later. We don't have a clue. And I hate that there's this weird narrative that's always sort of around the you know in sort of magazines mainly but you you see that story of used to feel like this now I'm, and I'm amazing yes we might feel better yes we might have more tools but we don't know what the hell's going to happen we just have to like you say make good decisions where we can exactly we're all flawed and yep. you just have to embrace being flawed you know it doesn't necessarily follow that if you've been through a hard time that you then deserve plain sailing. Mm. You can help yourself. You can absolutely help yourself. Also, is plain sailing better? No. I don't know. I, I haven't don't got think sea so. I haven't got sea legs anyway. I wouldn't even get on <laughs> I wouldn't get on a boat if it was like a mill pond out there. I don't, I don't know about you, but I could look into my past and see the I don't want to go through those times again. No. They were awful. Yeah. 
But my I'm grateful God, they that were I, fruitful. Yes, I'm so grateful, and I wouldn't have had. I wouldn't have had it any other way. Mm. I feel really, in some ways, as perverse as it might sound, I feel, I feel really lucky that I went through what I went through yeah. because of the sense it's enabled me to make of, you know, this extraordinary journey called life and where I want it to take me next. I think that helps us not fear the future because if we're only hoping for plain sailing, we're obviously never going to get that. There's going to be patches of it, but we'll always be disappointed. But if we can just allow a little bit of our brains to go, oh, that really rocky patch will bring me something. There will always be something in there, a learning or a new path or a new person in your life or whatever it might be. You know, we don't have to love and embrace those times. I can't, I'm not there yet with some of the stuff that I've been through, but I can certainly see they've changed the whole trajectory of my life and I'm doing something entirely different that I love. So And also you can talk about it. it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have that distance from it and not just sort of physical distance in time but emotional distance because you've done the work yeah you've got to do, you do work. the work you reap the rewards you do you really do <laughs> god i loved chatting to you i could talk to you all week there's i'm sure there's millions of patches that we've even missed in all of it but you know it's been an absolute joy to have you here to talk today thank, thank you, you for so sharing much. your story thank you so much oh freya Gosh, thank you so much for your time. I really did mean it when I said I could have talked to you for hours. It was a seriously eye-opening conversation. And I loved talking about... Well, I didn't love it because it obviously brings us great pain, but it was so interesting to talk about ghosting, which we really haven't delved into anywhere near enough. So I hope that Freya's honesty and perhaps even my own has helped you in some way if you are experiencing the same thing in a relationship at the moment. Now, Freya touched also on farming, which is something I went into great detail with Andy Cato in a couple of episodes ago. So do go and check that out. It's well worth going back to listen to it. It was so interesting. Do make sure you're following the Happy Place podcast on your podcast app of choice whilst you're there too. Freya's latest novel, Little Wing, is a completely compelling story of family secrets and courage and resilience. And like we spoke about, her sense of place is just so powerful. The book is out in hardback and on ebook on the 20th of January which is also the same day that my book comes out, incidentally. I've got a brand new book out. It's called Bigger Than Us. I loved writing it. It massively changed my life writing this book. I got to speak to so many wise people who collaborated um, in sections of the book, and I really hope that it helps you in some way. Okay, and here's a little extra for you. If you keep an eye on the Happy Place podcast feed, you'll spot an exclusive taster of the audiobook later this week. It's totally exclusive and you'll get to hear it here. Really, really hope you enjoy listening. So look, a massive thanks again to Freya, to the producers of this episode, Anushka Tate and Matt Hill at Rethink Audio and you wonderful lots for being here. See you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 